Philippians 4, 10 to 23, hear the word of the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Often when we write a thank you letter, we begin the letter with thanks, don't we? Dear so-and-so, and we start out saying, Thank you so much for the gift you send for my birthday, for Christmas, whatever it might be, wedding, whatever it might be. And we start out, we lead with the thanks. Other times, probably less commonly, we leave the thanks off to the end because we don't want it just to be a thank you letter. We want to talk about some relational things first. Usually we write the thank you letter and then we talk about personal matters. Sometimes we invert that. Talk about personal matters because we don't really want the focus to be on the gift and the thanks for the gift. And so we might leave it more to the end, almost as an aside. Oh, and by the way, thank you so much. I really appreciate the gift that you sent. In this case, we find out finally that Philippians is something of a, a thank you letter. But he doesn't explicitly lead off with the thanks, but he does indirectly mention it throughout the letter. And now finally he comes around to an explicit thank you for the gifts that the Philippians sent to him. Sometimes when we receive gifts, it's kind of awkward. The gift may be so abundant that it seems too much and we're, we're overwhelmed with the generosity, especially if we know that the person who's sending it doesn't really have a lot in the way of resources. And so our response may be kind of Awkward, and we may sense a little bit of awkwardness in the way that Paul acknowledges the gift here because he goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between two things. One is acknowledgement of the gift. There are three separate acknowledgements of the gifts that they sent. But then each time he acknowledges the gift, he clarifies. He gives one or two clarifications each time, and then perhaps feeling like the clarification could be misunderstood, he goes back and acknowledges the gift again. And we'll see how this goes back and forth and back and forth. And we might, we might sense, even in the great apostle Paul, a sort of embarrassment 
an awkwardness about, about how, to, how to receive gifts from others. Sometimes it's a lot easier to give gifts than it is to receive gifts. But Paul was on the receiving end in this case. So we have the first acknowledgement and clarifications in verses 10 to 13. He mentions two chief concepts from this letter in verse 10. And we've been working on these throughout this letter. He mentions rejoicing, and he also mentions thinking, although that, that idea of thinking or mindset is kind of covered up here in the translation. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Literally, you have revived your thinking for me. You indeed were concerned. You indeed were thinking. You were of the mindset to, to take me into account but you had no opportunity. So here, interestingly, when he says, I rejoiced what? I rejoiced in the Lord. But he says, greatly, now that at length you have revived your concern for me. So this is a combination of two things we've seen about joy. And they're put together here. So we've been commenting on throughout this letter that joy has a bedrock. That joy has a foundation that cannot change, that does not change. And yet... And yet, our relationships with one another do affect our experience of joy. And notice that he puts the two things together here in his last mention of joy. In verse 4 of this chapter, last week we saw, he says, Rejoice in the Lord. That's the bedrock. That's the bottom line. And here he says, I rejoiced what? In the Lord. But we also saw throughout the letter that his joy or their joy was increased as they related to each other with the mindset of Christ. And so what does he say here? I rejoiced in the Lord. That's the foundation. That's the unchanging bedrock. But on the occasion of receiving this gift from you. And so this relational generosity increased Paul's experience of joy in the Lord. Now, um, what is this Christian mindset? And, and, and this is really, in, in some ways, you could see this as the, the, the axis of this whole letter, going back to chapter 2 of Philippians. He says, you have revived your mindset about me. What's that mindset? You look at chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy, once again, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind or mindset among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And then he explains the mindset of Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, but did not regard equality with God something to be held on to. But he emptied himself, he humbled himself, he made himself a man, a servant, and he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the, that's the Christ mindset. And throughout this letter, he said, have this mindset. And then he pointed out last week that there were two women that were not having that mindset. And then in the final section, he says, you have that mindset towards me. So he comes back around and recognizes that they were practicing that mindset. Now, um, this, this, uh, this is his, his acknowledgement, but then he clarifies and he says, oh, maybe, this is the kind of thinking in his mind, I rejoice that at last you have revived your mindset for me. But then he says, oh, but I, I realize, and he clarified here, that you were thinking about me, but you just lacked opportunity. So he's clarifying 
that he wasn't, he wasn't rebuking them for taking so long. He was saying, I know you couldn't do this, even though you wanted to do this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that it, now at length you have revived your concern for me. And then he said, oh, whoa, whoa, but, but you were indeed, you were indeed with the mindset of Christ for me, but you had no opportunity. That's the first clarification. And then he makes another clarification. And in these clarifications, we learn about Christian living. These are very instructive. Because then he says, not that I am speaking, verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need. So he says, I want you to know that my thanksgiving is not coming out of a place of neediness. It's actually coming out of a place of fullness and contentment. Now, why was Paul so full and content? Because they had given him such a big gift? Actually, no. He explains, he says, he says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then he goes on and he explains. And if you, if you, by the way, if you read about Paul's career, if you read about his career and the extremes of his career, um, we, we know about some of the extremes. We don't know about the being brought high. We don't know about him abounding. But if you read about his career, it seems like he's always low. He's always in need. He says here, I know how to be brought low. Read the, the book of Acts. I know how to abound. We don't see much of that. But apparently he did experience abundance at some points in his life. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He says, I'm content. I'm working out of a position of contentment. Now, kind of surprisingly, uh, he uses a word that was very common among the Stoics. And the word here for content is something like self-sufficiency. This was the Stoic ideal, to be completely self-sufficient, not to depend on anything outside of oneself except providence, not to depend on other people, not to depend on other circumstances, to, be, to have a complete self-composure, a self-completeness, a self-sufficiency, apart from whatever was happening in one's life. And it's a very noble sort of posture. And this is a word that, that they would have picked up because they were, they were Roman citizens. They would have understood this, this stoic mentality. But he immediately clarifies and says, this is not a self-sufficiency. This is a Christ-sufficiency. In verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So it turns out that he's not self-sufficient. He is completely dependent on someone outside of himself for this constant contentment with whatever his situation was. So, first clarification. I know you wanted to. You didn't have opportunity. Second clarification. I'm not in need, ultimately. I thank you for your gift, but I'm not writing you out of a place of, of discontentment and of need. I'm writing you out of a place of Contentment. Now, this is probably one of the, the most, uh, well, uh, most well-known and, and oft-quoted verses of uh, Philippians. And oftentimes taken completely out of context and applied to whatever. But notice here, Paul is saying that I can do all things. What are the all things? I can abound and I can be in poverty. I can be, be fully satisfied and have a full stomach or I can be hungry. And regardless of those extremes, I can be content in Jesus Christ. 
because I have all that I need in life. But then, perhaps, thinking that that would be kind of rude to say that, thank you for your gift, but I didn't really need it, <laughs> then now we get the second acknowledgement here, okay? And you see kind of the, the back and forth. Verse 14, then he, clar- then he says again, yet it was kind of you, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And so once again, he, he, he turns and says, thank you. Thank you for sharing my trouble. And by the way, this connects, this word share is, is co-koinonia, to co-partner in my trouble. And this ties back with chapter 1, um, where he recognizes their partnership. Verse 5, he says, uh, always, verse 4, always in every prayer of mine for you, always... Uh, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your koinonia, your communion, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then he comes back around and he reminds them of that koinonia, that partnership in the gospel from the first day. It was kind of you to, to partner with me in my trouble. And then he points out that they were, as far as we know, a unique church. There may have been other churches like this in Paul's experience, but as far as we know from the data that we have, a unique church in its relationship with Paul in terms of its partnership and Paul allowing them to send him money. In verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, so when they received the gospel, when I left Macedonia, so that's the province in which Philippi was, so when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So Paul was well into his missionary career, and he says, no church helped me out except for you. And then he says, verse 16, even in Thessalonica, which is still part of Macedonia, so even before Paul had left Macedonia, so they, they, they supported him as he was leaving Macedonia, but they actually supported him more than once in Macedonia. And, and if you go back to chapter 16, this is remarkable. As far as we know, there were two families that were added to the church in, in Philippi. Maybe there were more that we don't know about, but there were two families, and immediately, Paul was run out after about a week, and immediately those couple families apparently began sending money after Paul. He went on to Thessalonica, and he went on to Berea, and in the very next city where Paul was, they sent gifts for his needs. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And by the way, if you go back and you read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul did not receive money from the Thessalonians. He made a point of that. And he did not receive. He made a point of that as well. He said, I'd rather die than receive money from you Corinthians. He did not receive money from the Corinthians. He did not receive money from the, from the Thessalonians. And he said to the Thessalonians, I didn't receive money for you because I wanted to give you an example of what hard work looks like. And so, so there were many occasions, or at least two that we know of, but but apparently more occasions in which Paul would not receive money, but he did receive money time and time again from the Philippians. So this was a unique church in its partnership, at least as far as we know, in its partnership with Paul in the work of the gospel. Now, 
once again, after that, that, that very effusive praise of the, the Philippians, then we have another clarification. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift. So once again, he, he doesn't want to give the wrong impression. So you have been amazing, Philippians. Thank you so much for this gift. And uh, thank you that you've given gifts all through my ministry. No other church has been like you. But I don't want you to think I'm fishing for more money. Okay? Not that I seek the gift. So here's the clarification. But what does he seek? He says, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit, to your account. And here Paul introduces financial, commercial, banking sort of language. He says, you know what I really want for you? I really want your account in heaven to be growing in interest that compounds itself over and over and over again. I want you to keep making deposits in that account. It was good that you shared in my, in my needs, my partnership. It, it's great and you're kind to do that. But, but I really want something. I really want your progress in the gospel. That's what he said, didn't he? When he was back and saying, should I live? Should I die? I'd really rather die and be with Christ. But to live on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake, for your joy and progress in the gospel. And he's saying, what I really want, what I most want for you is your joy and progress in the gospel. And that will come as you take your resources and you invest them in kingdom growth. Because as you do that, your account in heaven is growing tremendously. You see, what he was after was their eternal welfare, their eternal account in heaven. This, this sounds very much like the commercial language that Jesus used back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus introduced this kind of language of an account in heaven and a return on investment. And a, a lack of, an impossibility of losing your investment if you invested in heaven, if you invested in the kingdom. You cannot lose it. Nobody can take it away from you. And the return on investment is much better than any return you could find anywhere else for your money. That's the kind of language he's using here. And he says, I want that for you. Now, this is important for us to understand. We need to know about these accounts in heaven. If we have any resources, we're careful to keep track of our accounts probably and to see how they're doing. We get maybe a little alarmed when they go down and we, we're happy when they go up and we're able to make more deposits and so on. And yet here, we need to take into account that there is another account. And it's an account that never goes down. It only goes up. And its return on investment is much better than any investment we could make here. If we want our money to grow to the maximum amount, this is the account we need to put it in. This is the best tip, investment tip that we can ever receive. You see, and we, until we we're convinced of this, we won't invest in that account. You see, if, if we're afraid that we're, when we're giving to kingdom work that we're actually losing something, then, then we'll have a hard time giving to it. 
because we feel like we're, we're, we're losing something that we have. But when we understand the economics of the kingdom of God and realize that we have an account in heaven that has the best return on investment possible, then we will be free to take what we have and to invest it in that account. And Paul said, that's what I want for you. And if he were here, say the same thing to us. That's, that's what I want for you. I, 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 want, I want the best return on investment that you could possibly get. And I know where that account is. So that's the second acknowledgement and the second uh, couple qualifications. And then um, having introduced commercial language, Paul doubles down on it. He sticks with it. In the third acknowledgement, in verse 18, I have received full payment and more. You have sent more than enough. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Now we know that Epaphroditus was taking money with him. You remember Epaphroditus, right? The one who almost died along the way? The one who almost died in, in serving Paul on behalf of the Philippians? Well, now we know that, that he almost died getting the money to Paul, or perhaps thereafter, in fulfilling that mission that they had entrusted to him. And Paul said, paid in full. I have received what you sent. It is more than enough. I am well supplied, full payment. I've received it. And I want you to see something that's quite remarkable, how he describes the gifts that they sent. On the one hand, there is a pragmatic aspect to these gifts. That is, they supplied my needs. And this is, this is part of it. Missionaries have needs. They have needs. They need a roof. They need food. They, they need income. They need transportation. They, they have needs. And when we send money to missionaries, that helps supply their needs. So that's the pragmatic, the practical, necessary aspect of it. But notice here. He says, I receive full payment. I'm well supplied, having received the gifts you sent. Then he says, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. There's that account again. There's that, that relationship with God. Yes, it helps our missionaries. And it's also a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. But the remarkable thing about this language is that the only other place where Paul uses this language is to describe the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And this is priestly language. This is temple language. This is what took place in the temple. Sacrifices, offerings were given to God to be pleasing to God, to honor God. And then Paul described Jesus Christ as that sacrifice in Ephesians. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What, what is Christ for his people? He is a fragrant offering. He is a sacrifice in our behalf. And he is pleasing to God. And by the way, my friends, that is the only way we can be pleasing to God. To be in Christ by faith. We can be pleasing to God because he is that sacrifice that is pleasing to God. We, we cannot offer ourselves to God in order to be accepted to God as a sacrifice on our own account, but rather in Christ we are pleasing because Christ is pleasing. That's what his death and resurrection do for us. But notice that Paul was so bold 
as to describe the gifts of the Philippians in the same language in which he described the sacrifice of Christ. That it is a priestly offering. Our gifts for missionaries, help missionaries, our gifts for missionaries please God. Now let's put these together. Christ sacrificed himself for the salvation of all his people throughout all the nations and every tribe and tongue and language throughout all of history. That's his sacrifice. And we take these possessions that we have and we give them to missionaries so that those missionaries can take that message about the sacrifice of Christ to his people around the globe. So we, we take our little sacrifices, our little offerings, and we use those to get the message of Christ's offering to the ends of the earth. Now, um, there, um, he goes on to say here, going back to, to Philippians, after that description, there's a, a clarification here. And this clarification represents a little bit of perhaps embarrassment. Because here, this clarification in verse 19 recognizes something that we all know about gifts. Gifts supposedly are free, right? But in some way or another, they obligate the recipient, right? And we feel that. We receive a Christmas gift and we say, oh, I forgot about so-and-so. She sent me a gift and I didn't send her anything, right? We, we, we recognize that there is a reciprocity about gift giving. Because there is a reciprocity about friendship. You see, true friendship is not one way. True friendship goes in both directions. That's why we feel something of that obligation. We're not trying to pay anything back, but we're saying, I value this relationship, and I want this relationship to be a two-way street. When, when someone gives, I want to give in return. And, and we recognize that about, about giving, that there's a reciprocity. But, but where was Paul? Who was he? He was in prison. So the Philippians gave him a gift, and Paul wanted to give a gift in return. But, but he couldn't. He, he was a prisoner. So, so, so how, how does he keep the relationship going? How does he honor the reciprocity of a, of a real friendship? He says, well, even though I can't give you anything, I have something even better for you. God will supply all your needs. I, I can't supply all your needs. You've supplied mine. Thank you so much. God will supply your needs. God will pay you back. In Mexico, as here, oftentimes there are people on the streets asking for things. And uh, we would try, even as we try here, not to give money, but try to give in kind what they were asking for. If they're asking for food, give food. If they're asking for a bus ticket, go buy them a bus ticket. If they're asking for medicine, go buy them. Whatever it might be. But when we would give... Oftentimes, on the streets in Mexico, they would say, Que Dios se lo pague. Que Dios se lo pague. May God pay you back. And what were they recognizing? The, the reciprocity involved in gift giving and recognizing also that they, they were incapable. They, they, they couldn't give anything. And so they would say, May God pay you. And isn't that better? <laughs> isn't that better? Right? You give me a gift and I give you something back. Eh, you know, it's, 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 it'll be something. You give me a gift and God gives you back. Or I give you a gift and God gives me back. Isn't that better? 
God will supply all your needs. And by the way, I want you to know something about these Philippians. These Philippians were not wealthy people. Paul describes them in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And he said these Philippians were remarkable. Because when Paul was, was going around to the Gentile churches, and, and he was, was collecting money for the, the, the Jewish church because it was suffering famine, he wanted to skip over the Macedonian churches. And the reason he wanted to skip over the Macedonian churches is because they were so poor. But he says they found out about the offering and they begged him for the opportunity of participating in that offering for the poor in Jerusalem. They begged him. These poor Christians, they begged for the opportunity to participate. Don't you dare pass us by. We want to give as well. And he pointed them out as an example of real generosity. He said, Corinthians, you started, but the Macedonians have passed you up. And they don't have nearly as much as you do. They begged for that opportunity because they understood about that account in heaven. And they understood about that God would supply all their needs. Now, here's another verse that we, we quote and we often take out of context. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches, his glorious riches, in Christ Jesus. Now, how do we take this out of context? We, we apply it to whatever. Any sort of financial situation, it applies to those who invest in the kingdom of God. It applies to those who take of their means and they invest in the extension of the kingdom of God. Do that. And Paul says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And if he's the one who provides all the riches, and those riches are glorious, and they're in Christ Jesus, then he gets all the glory. And that's why Paul ends with the doxology, with the praise in verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he gets to the final greetings. But before he gets to the final greetings, let's talk about Florida Coast Church. Let's talk about how we support missions, what we do. And there are four ways. One, we are a mission. We need to remember that. We are a mission. That is, when people ask me, why do you want to start another church? There, there, there are lots of churches out there. I want to start another church. Here's the answer. If anybody asks you, why, why try to start another church? There are many churches. Because we want to reach people with the gospel that those other churches aren't reaching. They're reaching some. We want to reach others. That's the answer. We are a mission. Whether we've been doing well or not, I don't know. Now that things seem to be opening up, now it's an opportunity to push out again, to get out with people again. We are a mission, and we need to invest ourselves in the mission that God has given us here. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. We support our denomination. Our denomination asks, it doesn't levy a tax, but our denomination asks that we give a certain amount of money each year for every communicant member in the church. We don't have that many yet, but for every communicant member in the church, we give what they ask. And our denomination has missionaries all throughout the United States and parts of Canada and all throughout the world. So a piece of anything you give to this church goes to the denomination, and a piece of that goes to missions in the United States, Canada, and the rest of the world. That's the second thing. The third thing we do is we have a missionary couple in West Africa. And we support them by sending them money, and we support them by praying for them. 
we, we try to pray for them regularly in our prayer meeting on Monday. Join us for that. We try to pray for our missionaries and others. And so that's the third thing we do. We give and we pray. And the fourth thing that is now, just even now, happening, we have two of our young people who have been accepted as missionaries with two different organizations. Mission to the World, which is our own denomination's missionary organization, and Love Life, which is an organization in the United States that works to bring the gospel to abortion facilities and the men and the women who are in front of those and going in and out of those facilities. So we have two of our own. And those two are going to need support. And uh, while I was always embarrassed as a missionary to, to have to, I was really bad at, at asking for money, um, and I hardly ever did it because I was so embarrassed about the idea. Um, I'm not embarrassed to ask for our two young people because they are going to need your support. And we're going to be giving uh, opportunities for you to learn more about what they're doing so that you can decide whether you want to invest kingdom dollars in what they're doing. And by the way, this is a dream come true for me. You see, this is, this is how I know that we are all in as church with the, the extension of the gospel. When we take our best and our brightest young people and we send them to the mission field with our own dollars, then we know that we are invested in the kingdom of God. And so we're, we're taking that step even now. Thanks be to God. Now, then we have the final greeting. The final greeting here is, is kind of standard for Paul. Um, he, he greets every saint, and a saint is a holy one, a saint is a Christian. And we saw this from the very beginning. He, he, he identified the, the Philippians as the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And now he comes full circle, and he, he greets every saint in Christ Jesus. And this every is each and every saint. We don't know how big the church was, but Paul wanted a greeting for each and every saint in the church in Philippi. And then he says, the brothers who are with me, we don't know how, what other brothers were there. We know about Timothy. We know he was sending this letter back with Epaphroditus, but the brothers who were there greet you as well. And then he says, all the saints greet you. And now he says, the, the church here in Rome, all the, the holy ones in Rome greet all of you the church in Philippi. So it's a church-to-church -church greeting. And all of this is fairly standard. It's a way that Paul does it here. Except there's an addition here. He says, especially those of Caesar's household. Who are these of Caesar's household? And by the way, I think this is the confirmation that he was in Rome. Caesar's household. Caesar's family. Caesar's household, the gospel had gotten into Caesar's household. Why was Paul in Rome? Well, according to the Roman authorities, he was there in Rome because he had been accused of sedition by the Jews. And so they sent him on to Rome, and he appealed to Caesar, and he was going to stand before Caesar, and he says, I'm going to stand before Caesar because God has placed me here for the defense of the gospel, not against these charges of sedition. I am here to preach the gospel to Caesar. But what had already happened? Even before that, even before the final verdict and sentence was passed by Caesar, the gospel had seeped into Caesar's household. And here we see that, that we don't know whether it's through the Roman Christians, through his Paul's testimony, but here we see that the gospel was going forth even through Paul's imprisonment, which is exactly what he said, exactly what he said at the beginning. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, the praetorian guard, everyone else. And now we learn that some of those in Caesar's household had received 
the gospel. And then he ended once again where he began. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. In verse 1, verse 2 rather of the book, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the end of the book, he splits those off. He mentions the peace of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wishes us grace and peace from the beginning and grace and peace at the end. So grace, the, the source, peace, the result. God's favor and well-being, the result. And so we end with this. Grace and peace to you. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace from God the Father to you, but not only to you, but through you, as you invest yourselves and you invest your resources in the work of the kingdom, that all the nations might hear, and that all the places might be full, that the banquet might be full, and none be left out without the opportunity to hear and respond and come and feast. As we sang earlier, O oh God, pity the nations, O oh our God, constrain the earth to come. Send your great victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. Lord, would you be pleased to use our efforts, as weak as they may be, to bring the stranger home, both far and near. Use us, O oh God. May we take our place in the reaching of the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do this for the glory of Christ, the extension of your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name.